This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation on medication-assisted therapy for alcohol and opiates. So I know this is just a riveting topic that we all can't wait to talk about, but uh, we'll get through it and we'll see if we can't make it as interesting as possible. I learned a few new things. Um, So, and this seems kind of interestingly on point since the woman who inspired um, President Obama's war on drugs to make it less criminal and more of a disease sort of thing, um, passed away from an overdose. So we'll talk about um, why that happened, what that looks like, and, you know, maybe look at some of the issues with medication-assisted therapy when it is not implemented properly. So we're going to review some myths about medication-assisted treatment. Because there is a lot of stigma that surrounds it, not only in the rooms, if you will, um, but also among providers at treatment centers. Um, The clinic I used to work at in Florida, while while I was there, we opened a methadone clinic um, as one of our programs. And the amount of resistance we got from the staff was just mind-boggling. So we're going to talk about that some because there's a lot of misconceptions, but then there's a lot of, you know, rose-colored glasses by the people who support methadone. I mean, there's pros and cons to everything. Identify medications used to treat opiate dependence and to treat alcohol dependence. Interestingly, a lot of times there's some overlap here because we're working with that dopamine system again. We're going to discuss the mechanisms of action and evaluate the pros and cons of each kind of medication. So one of the first myths is that medication is a crutch. Um, And, you know, when I think of crutches, I think of something that holds people up until their body is healed and they can bear weight on their leg again or do something again. So... You know, I don't really like this term. I think a lot of people overuse it to say that um, people are using medication-assisted therapy instead of comprehensive treatment. And I don't believe that's true in the majority of cases when medication-assisted therapy is implemented correctly. Um, yes, medication's involved, but there is also a psychosocial component. Um, it's important to remember that we do what's more rewarding And if somebody is in early recovery and they have, like, zero dopamine action on their own, their serotonin system's all out of whack, it's barely tolerable to get out of bed in the morning, figure it, thinking about life from their point of view, it might be helpful in early recovery to keep them from wanting to try to numb all that out, because I wouldn't want to live through that. Um... It might be helpful to work with them to give them the tools they need to get the energy and motivation. Remember, dopamine is our motivation chemical. Energy and motivation to get up off the couch. Let's get up off the couch and do what we need to do. Now, it, it's not the be-all, end-all. I mean, think about, just think about depression for a minute. If you give somebody an antidepressant, does it make them undepressed? Not usually. Does it help? Does it take the edge off? Does it rebalance some neurotransmitters? Sure. 
Does it help them sing maybe with a little more color, if you will? Sure. I've, I've heard those things. However, if they still have that neg- negative cognitive pattern, if they still have the stinking thinking, if they still have the stress in their life, they are going to be feeling exhausted, hopeless, and helpless. So it's not, medication is not just a magic bullet. We can't give somebody a pill and voila, make it go away. Um, it's not the flu. So, medications make sobriety feel better by addressing the underlying neurochemical imbalances. So we're saying, you know, sobriety really isn't that bad. When people are coming out of um, detox, they don't feel so good. And I had a client come to me one time, and, you know, my half nonprofit agency, um, there were a lot of us, we had a big load. You know, we can make all the excuses in the world. But when it comes down to it, we were models of what sobriety was like. And one of my clients came up to me one day. He's like, nobody around here looks happy. If that's what sobriety is, I don't want it. And I said, oh, you know, that kind of hit home with me. So, of course, you know, my my staff suddenly had to sprout some rose-colored glasses. But we actually did start to... um, feel a lot better as a staff and start looking forward to coming to work more when we started loosening up a little bit. So um, medications give people the ability to start feeling some happiness, feeling some joy. It activates some of those dopamine uh, receptors. Medications can also remove the rewards from use by making it either unpleasant or removing or capping the high. So you're not getting wasted. At best, you're getting a little buzzed. And yes, that's not ideal in recovery. But, you know, we're thinking harm reduction. We're thinking of keeping from people, keeping from relapsing in early, early recovery. Um, And Suboxone um, does both. It has the high. It has buprenorphine, which has a ceiling effect. You can only get so much of a buzz, if you will, off of the buprenorphine. But if you take too much, it's actually going to induce a um, opiate detox. And it's going to do it rapidly, and it's very unpleasant from what I've been told. So recovery is more than just not using. We need to help people get the energy and the desire to develop skills and tools to maintain this drug-free lifestyle. Medications can, in some cases, help ease the transition until the brain has, time, has had time to rebalance and their new coping skills and new support systems and new lifestyle is in full swing. Another myth is that using medication goes against the 12-step philosophy. This is one that is rampant through a lot of meetings, not all, um, but there are many clients who either A, use this as an excuse so they don't, quote, have to go to 12-step meetings, or um, the reality is there are many meetings where people have said, if you're taking medication, you're not clean, you're not welcome here. So let's talk about that. Um, The big book states that, and I'm going to paraphrase, you can read this, but don't hesitate to take your health problems to your provider and remember that their services are often indispensable in treating a newcomer and following his case afterwards. The big book recognizes that in some cases, um, 
recovery and sobriety and long-term happiness and wellness and all that stuff may be comprehensive. It's not just going to meetings. It's not just not using. It's not just working the steps. In some cases, there are some biological um, underpinnings that, you know, the psychiatrist or the doctor may have to address. And I can hear, you know, in my mind, some people saying, well, that's fine. Psychotropics are totally different than methadone. And we'll get to that. So what are the pros? Medications can increase energy and motivation while the person's brain and body are recovering. Remember the, our, our talk about neurotransmitters. Norepinephrine is your get-up-and-go chemical. So is glutamate. And dopamine is your motivation chemical. It's the one that says, this is rewarding. We're going to do this some more. So as we try to basically artificially enhance those systems until the body can kick it in on its own, uh, we're helping people feel a little better. Some of the drugs can remove some of the reinforcing effects of the illegal drugs or the drugs that are being abused. So you're not feeling the high. You're not feeling good from it. You may not feel anything from it at all, and it's like, what's the point in taking this? It may prevent relapse by making relapse very, very unpleasant. So people may think twice, you know, especially if they're on something like antabuse, before they drink, because it's like, yeah, do I want to drink that bad to be driving the porcelain bus for the next three hours? Uh, it may reduce the intensity of co-occurring disorders. So some medications that we're going to talk about actually address some of the physiological uh, reasons that people may be using, whether it be a neurochemical imbalance or chronic pain, neurological pain, something like that. It can reduce conflict and improve social support. Now you're thinking, well, how does that happen? Are we giving the drugs to the other people too? No. But when your patient, when the person with the addiction is feeling less stressed, is feeling a little happier, is feeling less icky, they're probably going to be less argumentative. They're probably going to be easier to get along with, less depressed, which means it's easier on the people around them. Is it a walk in the park? Probably not, because they're still not going to be walking on sunshine. But it can help reduce conflict. Um, some of these things, like the antabuse, if the significant others are aware that the person is taking it, then it's almost like the safety, if you will, that the uh, significant others are aware that they know with confidence that the person is not drinking because they're not puking their guts out. There's some false negatives to that, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And reduced absenteeism from work. If their energy's up, their motivation's up, their mood's a little bit better, they're not relapsing. Guess what? They're probably going to be able to get to work. Hey, how cool is that? Which supports that whole new lifestyle that they're working toward. Downsides to medication. Some physicians are not educated or not sympathetic or both to the biopsychosocial model of treatment of addiction. Now, um, I worked with a psychiatrist early, early, early in my career. You know, this is, we're talking back in the 90s, um, who was very adamant that people had to have six months clean before he would prescribe them any sort of psychotropics, antidepressants, anything. And, you know, now that 
as 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 a community we've really embraced the co-occurring disorders philosophy you know we can see where that's probably not going to be the most helpful because then we ended up with a lot of people who were clean but were depressed as all get out and suicidal and anxious and they just couldn't make it through that period until their brain kind of kicked it into the gear and normalized again um, the other thing is ha having physicians who are sympathetic to the issue um, and, and understand what needs to be done. When we had people who had to go in for surgery or something like that, and they actually did have to have opiate-based medications or benzos for some reason, um, there was always a safety system. They were never given a bottle of pills and allowed to walk out of the hospital. Um, especially if they were returning to treatment with us. But uh, um, we would educate the physicians in the community that, you know, somebody else has to be responsible for this person's medications. And in the case of the woman who just passed away, she evidently had hip surgery. Um, and allegedly, the doctors were aware that she had an addiction, was in recovery, um, and allegedly, because, you know, we're just dealing with initial information now, she was given a bottle of 50 oxycodone and given that to take home by herself. And I'm like, yeah. Um, and she overdosed. Lots of things could have happened. You know, her tolerance probably went way down because she'd been clean for a while. Um, the pain was probably excruciating. And she had, like, access to a ton of her drug of choice. So, if, you know, worst case scenario... You know, the physician may have been uneducated as to what recovery means and how risky it was for her to have access to that kind of medication. But we need to really work with um, talking with physicians. Um, physicians are getting a little bit more educated about um, addiction, but not nearly as much as I would like to see. Um, some are awesome. You know, I have worked with some really amazing psychiatrists and physicians, so I don't want to knock all of any group of people. Medications can give a false sense of security and provide false hope. We're going to cover those at the same time. There is still a significant proportion of people out there that think medication's a magic bullet. You give me a pill, I'm going to be in recovery. And I'm like, no. At best, if you've got a pill, you're not using your drug of choice. That doesn't mean you're not going to find substitute addictions. That doesn't mean you're not going to still be depressed. That doesn't mean a whole lot of things. All it means is you're not going to be using your drug of choice. Further, you can still use your drug of choice. It may be unpleasant. You may not get the high. So saying that because I'm on this medication, I will never use again is a false sense of security. Given the right circumstances, I think anybody can apps, even if they are on something like antabuse. Medications have side effects. Everything from extrapyramidal, extrapyramidal symptoms to, um, you know, the side effects of antabuse and alcohol, which is basically really bad flu-like symptoms. There is a stigma associated with the use of medication-assisted therapy because um, there's a lot of misunderstandings about it. And because there's a lot of lack of education about it, people do think of it as substituting one addiction for another. Um, 
And at this point, I usually find it helpful to educate people that addiction is using a substance to escape from pain and continuing to use it despite negative consequences. That's where you run into your addiction. If somebody is taking Zoloft in order to help them feel less depressed so they can get through therapy, is that substituting addiction? If somebody is taking even Suboxone, you know, let's, let's go with one of the drugs we're going to talk about. If they are using it as prescribed and it is not causing them any problems in their life and it is helping them, you know, stay clean and do, do the next right thing, is it substituting an addiction? I'm kind of putting that out there for you to chew on in your own, in your own thought processes um, as to how you define um, what an addiction is and how it relates to medication-assisted therapy. I will point out that if you look at just about any insurance company's uh, level of care guidelines, medication-assisted therapy for substance abuse or mental health is recommended by every single insurance company out there. Just putting that out there. Medication does cost money. Yet another little soapbox. Um, if your patients cannot afford their medication, go to the pharmaceutical company's website. Almost every pharmaceutical company, if not everyone, has a patient assistance program. There's a, most of the time one page sheet that you print out the doc fills it out, takes less than five minutes, signs it, faxes it in, and the patient can either get a waiver or can get low-cost medications, you know, like four bucks a month or something. So if a patient really needs medication, I have yet to see one of those turned down if somebody is actually truly needy. Um, so do be aware that patients can get medication. So let's talk about opiate dependence first. Neurotransmitters we're talking about, it's mainly dopamine. Patients report when they take it, it's pain and less anxiety. So that tells us that there's dopamine and probably some GABA activation going on too. Medications for opiate dependence. And like the other presentations, there's a whole list of references that you can go um, look at more in depth at the end of this presentation. But buprenorphine. And methadone are two of the ones that we're going to talk about. Buprenorphine is, a, well, I'll get into it in a minute. Um, naltrexone and naloxone, which is used for the opi opioid overdose. And buprenorphine plus naloxone, which is suboxone. So buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist. It has a ceiling effect, which means you can take, you can take it, and you can get a little bit of a high off of it, but at a certain point, it cuts off. And no matter how much more you take, you're not going to feel any higher. You're not going to get any more of a buzz, if you will. Now, that's just if you're taking buprenorphine. If you're mixing it with other drugs, you can get high as a kite. And our clients know this. So, <laughs> But the medication itself um, that does have a ceiling effect. It can reduce the symptoms of withdrawal from misused opiates. So it can be used to help taper somebody down in a safe and legal way because we're not obviously going to cut down their dose of heroin. We're going to switch them over to something else. And it's sort of a kinder, gentler opiate withdrawal. Can be abused. Now, kinder, gentler opiate withdrawal. 
another thing for you to think about. And it's an ethical issue more than a legal issue. If somebody detoxes from opiates, which is rarely life-threatening unless the person is pregnant, um, and then it's often only life-threatening to the fetus. But if somebody basically goes cold turkey, it is a miserable withdrawal, no doubt. But if I go through something that bad, I'm going to be pretty certain I don't want to do that again. And it's going to remind me not to do it again. The kinder, gentler opiate withdrawal, the step-down method, doesn't have any bite to it. So people do get off the medication, but it's almost like, well, if I relapse, I'll just step down again. And that's pretty much what some of my clients have told me. Um, they only want to do the kinder, gentler withdrawal because they don't like feeling pain. I'm like, well, okay. So is there, are we setting patients up for relapse or making it um, a little easier for them to relapse? I don't want to say more likely. Um, if they don't feel the full effects of an opiate withdrawal. From a behavioral standpoint, if we're strictly talking like Skinner Box behaviorism, I'd say yes. Uh, from an ethical standpoint, do we want people to suffer that much for three to ten days? Yeah, you know, my compassion kicks in a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's, it's always a difficult, difficult choice, and obviously only one the patient and their doctor can make. But Methadone, one of the most controversial drugs. Um, there are a lot of places that are actually not, a lot of states that are actually not allowing any more methadone clinics to be built. Because there are alternatives now. In any event, methadone is a full mu opiate agonist. It helps suppress some of the cravings for opiates, but taken in high enough doses, people can get high off of it. It lessens the painful symptoms of opiate withdrawal, just like the buprenorphine, um, and blocks the euphoric effects of the opiate drugs when taken as prescribed. It's considered relatively safe during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Opiate withdrawal during pregnancy can trigger contractions and miscarriage. Um, when the, the clinic, the, the company that I worked for, one of my units was a mother-baby postpartum, pregnancy postpartum unit, the methadone clinic, and then we had, you know, several other units. But several of our mothers um, came to us and they were using or misusing opiates, and the doctor moved them over to methadone, detoxed them from the methadone once they gave birth to their child. The children are born with methadone in their system and will experience a withdrawal. That's just the way it is. But they are generally carried as close to term as they would have been, um, and there haven't been any noted significant negative effects, long-term effects on the infant. Um, again, this is a medical decision, not a mental health decision. But from our perspective, if we have a client come to us who is shooting heroin and, you know, six months pregnant, we may talk with them about options for protecting themselves and protecting the baby. And one of them would be to get on methadone 
um, I'm not sure about buprenorphine um, in pregnancy, but um, anyway. SAMHSA, tip 43, uh, medication-assisted therapy for opioid addiction is a really good in-depth text on methadone and buprenorphine. It's an older text, so it was written kind of when methadone clinics were really sprouting up everywhere and at their peak. Um, uh, so if you want to get more information about that, that is a really good uh, reference, and it's free and online on the SAMHSA website. Now, Trexone decreases the pleasurable effects of alcohol or opiates. So, now Trexone can be used both places, also known as Vivitrol, which, you know, we commonly think about Vivitrol when we're talking about alcohol, but decreases the pleasurable effects of alcohol or opiates by blocking opiate receptors. So, we're like, okay, well, how, how does that work? When the endogenous opioids or when the opioids are um, enter into the bloodstream, they cause um, dopamine to be released. So if we block the opiates, then the dopamine never gets released. So there's no rewarding effect. With naltrexone, alcohol abstinence is not required, but opiate abstinence is. It will kick in a uh, opiate withdrawal in dependent users. Third-party payer acceptance, and the third-party payer information I got from the NADAC presentation on the, a couple of these medications. Um, oral is covered by most major insurance carriers, including Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA. Now, I added the oral part because my experience has been that Vivitrol, which is the long-term acting injectable, is not covered in many cases by Medicaid. So it would be really important for your client to know which um, method would be accepted by their insurance company, especially if finances are an issue. Vivitrol, I've also not known the companies to be um, very giving of patient assistant programs for the Vivitrol since the oral can be used basically in the same way. Naloxone blocks opioid receptors. So again, we're just blocking those opioid receptors to prevent the dopamine from going out to make it be less reinforcing. It antagonizes, which means it kind of shuts down um, and, and prevents the effectiveness of morphine and other opiates. Um, so it's a big bully. It's going, no, you're not going to come in here. You're not going to do your thing. It prevents or reverses the effects of opioids, including respiratory depression, sedation, and hypotension. Another one of the things that we have to remember when we look at some of these stats about the rapidly increasing deaths from opiate overdoses, and I'm not saying it's not a problem in numbers. You know, I think there are a vast number of people who are picking this habit or addiction up, but... Remember that fentanyl is 30 to 50 times stronger and way, 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 way cheaper to produce than heroin. So a lot of people are getting heroin thinking it's pure, it's cut with fentanyl, and they're accidentally overdosing and killing themselves, which is why it is really good to have naloxone on hand um, because I think there are a lot of accidental overdoses that are occurring right now, and it's not... When we look at the overdose rates, it's because the drug is ba actually becoming more dangerous and more a greater percentage of the people who use are actually dying. 
So we're going to switch gears now that we end on a happy note. Uh, neurotransmitters. When we're talking about alcohol, we're talking about dopamine, which works on your motivation and pleasure, endogenous opioids, pain and euphoria, glutamate, which is your get up and go, and GABA. Now think about alcohol. When you drink, at first you get, you know, kind of a little loopy, if you will. Then you start to feel relaxed. As the alcohol wears off, some people start to feel anxious, which causes them to pick up and drink again. Dopamine, or not dopamine, alcohol has sort of a two bimodal interaction. It'll relax you, but then the glutamate kicks in and the anxiety ramps up. So uh, it's, it's a depressant, but it's also an anxiety producer. Medications for alcohol dependence. Desulfiram, which, you know, I, I tried, I practiced on that one. I still couldn't say it right, which is anabuse. Naltrexone, which the oral kind is known as Revia, blocks opioid receptors, so the reward effects um, are reduced because dopamine's not excreted. Vivitrol, which is the extended release injectable naltrexone. Last time I checked, the Vivitrol injections were like 1200 bucks. I don't know what they're running now. Um, but it was really, really expensive. It wasn't something that the average person could afford if their insurance wasn't going to cover it. A Camprosate or Camprol and newer medications, which, you know, Gabapentin is one of them and then these other two. Camprosate, or Camprol, reduces post-acute withdrawal symptoms. It upregulates the glutamate receptors, your get-up-and-go receptors, which reduces the depression. But you remember that GABA, which is your relaxation anti-anxiety receptor, is made from glutamate. So if you've got too much glutamate and not enough GABA, you're going to feel a lot of anxiety. In this case, they're just like opening the faucet on the glutamate and the GABA is lagging behind there. So it creates an imbalance, which increases anxiety, mood lability, insomnia, and tremors. There was a noted increase in adverse events of suicidal nature during clinical trials with a camprosate. They didn't go into um, detail about exactly why, you know, whether they thought it was because the anxiety um, was too much for people to deal with or there was another reason or the mood lability. They just would go down into this deep, deep depression and uh, couldn't handle that or what happened. But it is important to realize, and when we don't get enough sleep, that insomnia will kick in and kind of start impairing judgment as well. So is this the best drug in the world? In my opinion, probably not. But it's obviously still sold and obviously still used. It helps with pause. That's good. Um, if your person doesn't have a whole lot of underlying anxiety, they may be able to tolerate it. As you well know, um, alcohol is one of the very few drugs that can have a life-threatening detox. So, you know, it's really important that people be under medical supervision. Third-party payer acceptance. It does qualify for patient assistant programs through uh, Forest Laboratories, who, who makes Camprol. It's also covered by most major insurance carriers, including the VA if naltrexone is contraindicated. So the VA obviously prefers naltrexone or Revia.
to sulfuram ant abuse. Learned a few interesting things about this. I mean, I knew it was some nasty stuff, but makes patients physically sick if they drink. Okay, you know, we know that. Third-party payer acceptance, it is it is accepted by most, or covered by most insurances. That's great, too. Um, how does it work? In the liver, alcohol is broken down into acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is converted by acetaldehyde dehydrogenase into acetic acid. Um, the sulfur blocks acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, which means the acetaldehyde accumulates in the blood to toxic levels. So then basically the person's reacting to toxicity. Um, not a, a wonderful thing. It makes them physically sick. It makes them really, really sick. Most of our patients know this. Okay, so that's, you know, something they're aware of. But what they're not aware of, acute toxic reaction lasts about an hour, but may linger while there is alcohol in the blood. Okay, so good for them to know. Um, good for us to know if they're in detox and they're puking their guts out. Um, it can be triggered by alcohol-containing products like cough syrup. Good to know. A lot of patients, once they get through detox and they're in treatment, in IOP, in outpatient, may be given antabuse. It's important for them to understand that alcohol kind of lurks, kind of like Tylenol. It lurks in all the weirdest places. So they really need to read the label before they ingest anything. Additionally, how many alcoholic patients do you have that are painters? You know, just, you may be like, well, three. But that's still, you know, a fair amount if they're going to get physically sick. Patients taking this should not be exposed to ethylene dibromide or its vapors, including paint fumes, paint thinner, varnish, or shellac. So anybody who works as a painter or works in furniture refinishing probably shouldn't be taking antabuse. If... Your patient starts feeling really good, buys a house, decides he's going to remodel. You know, this is good because it keeps me away from, you know, bad people, bad places, bad things. And it's a positive activity. That's great. Just don't paint. <laughs> um, important to reinstill that in them. Because if they get sick doing something that is pro-social and positive, it's going to be sort of a ding in the, in the recovery armor. They also need to ex exercise extreme caution when applying aftershave, mouthwash, lotions, colognes, rubbing alcohol, and um, that antibacterial hand sanitizer. Now, I know some of our clients in, in residential, we had to take the hand sanitizer down because they were drinking it. Uh, <laughs> but even just casual using it on the skin, um, the amount that's absorbed through the skin may be enough, evidently, to trigger a reaction. The other thing that the patient and the significant others need to know, because remember I said significant others may be um, confident that as long as their person's not throwing up, that they're, they haven't relapsed. And then their person comes home and starts puking their guts out, and they're like, you went out and drank. And the patient's like, no, I didn't. And they get into this argument and whatever. It could happen. If the person, even if the person doesn't drink. It also could happen if the patient takes antabuse and up to two weeks after the last dose of antabuse, 
they ingest some form of alcohol or expose, are exposed to paint fumes, paint thinner, varnish, or shellac, um, it could make them very ill. So can patients use this to try to explain away a relapse? Sure. I didn't drink. I took cough syrup. Yeah, well, you know, they, they already have probably researched this information. But the thing about the lotions and the aftershave and, and uh, the fact that they can get sick for up to two weeks afterwards, um, a lot of them don't know, at least the ones that I've talked to. So antabuse is still used. It still has a lot of, you know, very useful purposes, if you will. Remember when I was talking about the methadone being the kinder, gentler withdrawal from opiates, antabuse is kind of the cold turkey of alcohol withdrawal. Um, you know, they've withdrawn, they're, they're clean, there's no alcohol in their system, and if they use again, it's going to be mighty unpleasant. So they're probably going to think about it um, long and hard. Now, Trexone decreases the pleasurable effects of alcohol or opiates by blocking the opiate receptors. You get the idea that all these drugs kind of work in the same way. Um, Let's see, we already talked about uh, third-party payer acceptance. Remember, now, Trexone can be used for both opiates and alcohol. Newer meds. Ondensteron, sold under the name Zofran, and works through the serotonin system, especially in regard to serotonin-3 receptors and its effect on dopamine. And there's a lot of text here, but I think it's important because we're getting into Psychopharm again. In alcoholics, they hypothesize that there's a heightened sensitivity of the serotonin-3 receptor, which makes alcohol more rewarding. We've heard people speculate about this before, that sometimes maybe drugs are more rewarding for some people than others. Well, some research has now indicated that that may be true. Some people may have an extra-sensitive serotonin-3 receptor. If this receptor is blocked then the person may have a decrease in alcohol-induced dopamine release, resulting in less pleasure from the alcohol, which may produce a decrease in alcoholic drinking behavior. Now, that's a whole lot of ifs and mays. But if you have a highly motivated patient, um, this certainly may be something to, for them to think about. Now, the fiend is an opioid. Opioid antagonist, remember, antagonists stop the pleasure, um, similar to naltrexone, without the risk of liver toxicity. Um, and it is longer acting than the oral naltrexone. Obviously, Vivitrol is an injectable, and I think it lasts 30 days. Gabapentin is the one um, that I hadn't really thought about, but it's being used for pain management and anxiety and insomnia which are all problems that are very common among alcohol and or opiate-dependent patients. So thinking about the patients that we have that are detoxing from opiates or alcohol or both, um, they talk about pain. You know, they took the opiates for pain. Um, or when they took the opiates, they felt less anxious. When we talk, think about our alcoholics, a lot, a lot of times they don't talk about pain, but they do talk about anxiety or insomnia. Um, restlessness, agitation, the anger, stress, whatever they call it, and uh, they perceive that the alcohol helps calm them down. So, uh, gabapentin has actually shown a fair amount of promise 
as um, an adjunct therapy with people that are in recovery for opiate and or alcohol disorders. And then there's comorbid conditions. You know, we talk about addiction a lot of times like it's just this island out there. And if we take care of the addiction, then we'll take care of everything else. And that's not really the case because there are comorbid conditions that either pre-existed or we were caused because of um, overuse of the, of the addictive substances or addictive behaviors. So we need to look at helping people get through this early recovery period while their brains balance out. Interestingly, anxiety, insomnia, depression, and pain are the ones that come up most often. PTSD is a whole other category. Um, obviously, the uh, uh, neurochemical imbalances are not going to cause PTSD. Um, and, and there are other treatments and interventions needed there. So we're just going to focus on these four. But one of the commonalities you probably see as you scan this slide, all four of them, one of the first-line response, pharmacological responses for them are SSRIs. So... Let's look at, you know, stimulating that serotonin system, getting whatever's going on kind of back into balance. It doesn't always work. Remember, we've talked before about how too much serotonin can be as bad as too little serotonin. Insomnia, um, you know, with anxiety, you've also got boost bar. When treating comorbid conditions, generally docs try to stay away from the highly addictive substances, your typical barbiturates, benzos, and um, opiates. So you're not going to see things like Lunesta for insomnia. You're going to see them looking towards SSRIs, gabapentin, or atypical antipsychotics, generally. Um, depression, SSRIs, atypical antipsychotics. These medications, the patients are not going to get high off of, but it may give them the oomph that they need to get up and go. Um, when we talk about pain, SSRIs are there too. And, you know, if you didn't go to uh, the class on, on the neurotransmitters, uh, it's important to remember that a lot of our pain perception is controlled through serotonin and, and our endogenous opioids. But... Uh, patients who have low serotonin have been found to have a much lower pain tolerance and are much more reactive to any sort of pain, which, you know, when you're in pain, you don't sleep well. You tend to be grumpy. When you tend to be grumpy and don't sleep well, over time, it just wears on you. You, you know how that goes. So we need to look at talking with our clients about these comorbid conditions talking with them about medication-assisted therapy. What can it do for them and what can't it do? It's not a magic bullet, but is it as scary as they think it is? My uncle, when he was in recovery, would not take aspirin. Um, he's passed away now, so, you know, that's why I said when he was in recovery. But he was so afraid of becoming dependent on taking a pill for everything that he just wouldn't, he wouldn't take anything. Uh, there are extremes, obviously. And sometimes some people need extremes. 
But in many cases, it helps, if you want to talk about the kinder, gentler, it helps make sobriety and early recovery and that post-acute withdrawal phase um, more tolerable, more bearable. Because remember, in the addiction, the dopamine system, the, the receptors, there's so much dopamine in that synaptic space that the, the receptors in the um, postsynaptic neuron start closing down some of the doors. They're like, we got to stop so much of this dopamine from go going through. And then when the person quits taking the cocaine or the opiates or whatever it is, the brain doesn't automatically open those doors back up. It doesn't realize that they're, it's not going to be flooded again. So it keeps those doors closed for quite a while. And whether it reopens the same doors or forms new doors, we're not really sure yet. But until that happens, then the, quote, normal amount of dopamine, normal amount of serotonin, normal amount of whatever that goes into that space that's been blocked is not going to get through to the other side. So the person's going to feel down. It's going to feel slow. It's going to feel less rewarded. Eventually, the brain does start being becoming more reactive. Um, the other thing I can, you know, draw a parallel with, if you've ever been on steroids, some people are on steroids for two, three months after chemotherapy or for various reasons, but then they have to be weaned off of them for the same exact reason, because the body quits producing its own steroids because it's getting them artificially. It doesn't need to, and if the body produces that much its own steroids and then it's getting artificial steroids, then it would be too much. So the body says, okay, well, if you're going to do that, you know, I need to maintain homeostasis. I'm kind of OCD about that. I need homeostasis, so I'm going to quit producing mine. You withdraw, and it's not like the body goes, oh, okay, the prescription ran out so I can start performing again. No, it takes a little while for the body to kick in and go, oh, I'm not getting enough. Now there's a deficit, so I need to kick it into gear. I'm hoping that makes sense. Um, anyhow, so both opiates and alcohol activate opiate receptors. Medication-assisted therapy is used to make sobriety more rewarding and reduce relapse triggers in early recovery. It's essential to address comorbid conditions in addition to the substance use. You notice I didn't say substance dependence or addiction um, because medication-assisted therapy is really only addressing the substance use itself. It's not addressing all the underlying reasons why the person uses the substance or why the person might relapse. So we need to make sure that we help them understand that so those relapses don't come from, quote, out of the blue. Hopefully, they don't come at all. Are there any questions? Okay, if there are questions, feel free to send me a message at support at allceus.com or um, how often is antabuse prescribed? Um, quite honestly, I can tell you in the nearly two decades that I've worked in community mental health, I've only seen it prescribed a handful of times, but I have only worked at a handful of clinics. Um, 
that would be something that I, I will research and I will put in the notes in your classroom because um, I don't know the answer to that offhand. Sure. All right, everybody, have a great afternoon.